everything is being affected by technology. There hasn't been such rapid and significant change since the Industrial Revolution. Now everything is up for grabs, and the future has never been harder to predict. The worst thing you can do is take out something is now and assume it's going to be like that forever. To survive, you need to adapt. And to thrive, you need to pioneer new ways of thinking and doing. This is the podcast that talks to people that think staying still is the most dangerous thing you can do. I'm Tommy McCubbin, Advertising Creative Director, Startup Founder, Dad and Podcaster. And this is Future Sandwich, the podcast that has a sandwich with people that are making the future happen today. Welcome to Episode 2, Breaking Down Bitcoin. Now everyone's heard of Bitcoin. Some have bought some, some have bought stuff with it. But almost everyone struggles to explain it. Introduced in 2009... Bitcoin has had the promise of being the global currency, offering a completely decentralised network with zero fees designed to never, ever inflate. Without question, the next evolution of currency. Now, since its inception, progress has been slow but steady, and the full promise and potential of Bitcoin has not yet been fulfilled. Although 2015 marked the biggest year yet for Bitcoin, finishing 38% up, there is still some major issues that will challenge its growth in years ahead. This is the biggest problem with Bitcoin still today. It's, it's not a sentence explanation. In this episode, we talk to an authority on Bitcoin, Alan Sen, and follow him down the rabbit hole of the world of Bitcoin. And then we can just start going down and cutting through the onion and talking about all the, all, all the stuff until we get to the core, which is really the, the technology which it all sits on, right? Which is sort of the cool thing to talk about at the moment, which is the blockchain. So what does all this mean? We talk with author Steve Sammartino about Bitcoin and how it has been a long time coming. You know, we've got a global economy. It's about time we had a global currency. You know, every epoch of human existence has had a new currency. You know, in the Bronze Age, that's when coins came along. In the Agricultural Age, that's when we had grain receipts. In the Industrial Age, we had fiat currency. And in the Digital Tech Age, we're going to have a cryptocurrency. And who is this most likely going to affect? Banking is just like the biggest trick that ever happened. We definitely don't need banks. Right? All they've got at the moment is a little bit of a stranglehold on the system. And it might take 10 or 20 years, but I've got zero doubt that banks will be disrupted even bigger than than the music industry was. So this hard-to-explain, mysterious cryptocurrency is genius. Its potential is epic. So who is behind all of this? There's a whole bunch of theories as to who it might be, whether it's an individual or it's a group, a collective um, group of people. Welcome to Future Sandwich, Episode 2, Breaking Down Bitcoin. So I bought some Bitcoin at a Bitcoin ATM sometime in 2013. A lady came to my agency at the time and plonked a big steel box that resembled an ATM down on the boardroom table. I reached for my wallet and put some cash into this machine and then received an email saying I had successfully bought a quarter of a Bitcoin. To be honest, since then I haven't touched my wallet, mainly because I've lost the passwords. But I suspect this is a similar story for a lot of people. You dive in at the start and then lose interest over time. The hype has not converted to adoption, and the access to buying and trading in Bitcoin has all but trickled into our lives. So, to start the episode, we have to begin at the most obvious place, an explanation of what it is. And who better to ask than Alan Sen? He is the guy who can talk all things Bitcoin to all people. He writes the week in Bitcoin and organises events Fintech Melbourne and Bitcoin Melbourne. So we asked him to do the impossible and explain what Bitcoin is. My favourite one-liner around Bitcoin is really it's changed, mo- it's changed money from paper and, and this sort of quasi-digital notion that we now have with credit cards and bank accounts to packets. So literally, packets, money, un- money is now packets. 
right? Which I think is a really succinct way to think about what Bitcoin really has done. It's turned it from institutions. It's turned it from um, banks and, and intermediaries controlling sort of how money it works um, to really just being packets, just being moved across the interwebs, right? So which I think is a really interesting notion. And that's just one slice of Bitcoin, right? And then we can just start going down and cutting through the onion and talking about all the all, all the stuff until we get to the core, which is really the, the technology which it all sits on, right? Which is sort of the cool thing to talk about at the moment, which is the blockchain. So the blockchain, equally as hard to grasp, is what Bitcoin is built on. Now, don't worry, we'll get to that in a second. In the meantime, let's ask author Steve Sammartino what makes Bitcoin so great. Benefit is it's not owned or controlled by anyone, all right? It's like weather. <laughs> it's like it's going to come and go, is it right? You don't own it or control it. There'll never be more than 21 million bitcoins, all right? It's a divisible currency, which I love. So it actually becomes a deflationary currency. All you do is divide it by another decimal point to create more of it. But it doesn't uh, undervalue the fixed amount. So it's kind of like gold in a way. It's like a mineral. There's a fixed amount of it, all right? It doesn't cost anything to transfer because there's no lies between the banks of saying, oh, well, you wanted to transfer money to Tony in, in the UK, so we're just going to take $34. Why? I don't know. We just pressed a button somewhere and it went through some tubes. Who knows? Didn't cost us anything, but we're charging you $34 for that. It's a total hoax, right? Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of real, you know? It it's, it's behaves more like commodities do, um, but it's highly divisible and you can send it and you can ship it around and, and it's got security because it's not owned or controlled by anyone. It's got anonymity, like cash. So it's got all of the great things different forms of currency have all wrapped into one format. And the blockchain, Alan mentioned earlier, the cool thing everyone is talking about. Steve, take us through it. Uh, so the blockchain, the, the simplest way to describe it, and I'm not an expert on blockchain. The blockchain is the idea that, of what Bitcoin is built on. And that is a public ledger of every transaction. And in that ledger, it says that um, CoinWallet X gave X amount of coin to CoinWallet B. Right, a blockchain is sort of basically a public ledger, and a ledger is a record of events statement. to use a statement. Right, And what happens is the blockchain is beautiful because it's on everyone's computer. It's not in a central location. It's decentralized. So everyone who's plugged into the blockchain gets that update of all the transactions that happen. It's a distributed system. So if there's a nuclear explosion in America, it's okay because we've got all the information in England or all the other places that it's in. So there's never going to be a dispute of what actually happened and who owes who what. So the hype around the blockchain is crazy. Everyone seems to be talking about it and how massive this can be for a global economy and beyond. So why is it so hard to explain and how come we aren't all using it yet? So I heard this analogy the other day which I really like about about the blockchain which is in the 80s and in the 90s, you bought a computer and then you had to get the internet onto the computer. So, so you bought a computer and, and usually you then had to go and buy a modem and you had to slot the modem into the, into the little sort of PCI slot and then you had to you know, install WinSock and work out whether you needed WinSock 16 or Win, WinSock 32. Uh, and then you had to you know, set up some, some various little switches on your modem. And then if you were lucky, after about three days of, of fiddling around you could access the internet, or you could access a, a BBS or CompuServe that allowed you to access the internet. And so we went through you know, reasonably 15 years of you, computers had to have the internet put on them, 
and then suddenly we hit this point where every computer came with the internet. Uh, you, you cannot buy a laptop now that doesn't have Wi-Fi, um, except perhaps an extremely secure one, like a very expensive laptop that's really secure might not have Wi-Fi. Um, and in the same way, you know, phones, the, the same thing sort of happened with phones. We had a, a shorter period where you had to try to get internet onto your phone, and it was terrible, and it was clunky, and only very early adopters did it. And then suddenly the internet was on your phone, and it opened up this whole new world, and suddenly things were possible that weren't possible before. So with blockchain, the same sort of thing is going to happen, uh, which, is, which is that at the moment, for me to enable micropayments uh, within a web browser or within my mobile phone or within my tablet, uh, I would have to install plugins and I would have to set up accounts and a publisher would have to be running a certain thing that would enable essentially me to, 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 to pay for content as I went around the internet. Um, now, we'll reach a point where that will be built into the hardware and because of, just because of the value that, that sort of the, the blockchain protocol can bring to the real world, uh, we, we will have essentially sort of blockchain-enabled chips built into mobile phones sometime in the next sort of five years, I think. And once that happens, um, magic can sort of start happening, um, not just in content payments, but in, but in lots of different payments. And it's sort of this NFC, Google Wallet world that we've been promised isn't, isn't actually what it appears, but once we get the sort of blockchain piece, that's when the transparent, frictionless thing happens. So to fulfil its promise, we need a better explanation. It's interesting because the UX will bubble up it's almost like it needs an interface on top of it. So if we think about your smartphone, there's a whole lot of stuff underneath your smartphone that makes it work with electronic bits and sensors and microchips and displays and all of that, right? But that's not our problem. It's like you turn on your smartphone, you go, I understand it. Bitcoin needs an interface like that. That's what it needs. And right? what's or, or, or a number of interfaces, Right? It's kind of like you, you get the money in the bank and you don't know how they made it secure and how much it was there and so it's in your wallet. You just know how to use it. It's got an interface, right? Bitcoin doesn't really have an interface and it, has, and it needs a lot of education to teach people how to do it. Um, but the powers that be that control that education process have no interest in having Bitcoin because they lose control. Government don't want Bitcoin because they lose control. So maybe the Western world isn't ready for a cryptocurrency. We talk with Alan Sen about where Bitcoin is making a real difference today. Bitcoin is in the wild. It's being used. It's just that it's not necessarily at the moment solving a problem in the first world. Right? So here in Australia, we have a really good banking system. So the problem isn't as acute. Right? But then if you go over, you know, you take a big long plane ride from Australia and you go to Africa, right? There are a whole bunch of issues with that. I mean, sorry, actually, let's, you can even fly a little closer. We can fly over to the Philippines, right? And the Philippines has some really interesting um, banking stats. So one of the things about the Philippines is that um, somewhere in the range, and uh, I'm sure someone, can, you know, someone will correct me if I get this wrong, but somewhere in the range of about 75% of people are unbanked in the Philippines. 90-something percent um, don't have credit cards, right? So... For the large majority of people, the ease of being able to access their money just does not exist, right? And so that's why we've seen a lot of Asian countries, people leapfrogging, for example, um, 
landlines just straight to mobile and, and more than mobile smartphones. And so there's a similar probably pattern that will emerge around banking in those countries where people just leapfrog banks and go peer-to-peer maybe, right? It's, it's just one example. And there are companies in the Philippines that are, uh, that are doing this, right? And same in Africa. There's a, there's a um, you know, everyone's heard of probably... If you're in technology, you've heard of it, right? M-Pesa, which is doing mobile phone payments, right? And there are a few other companies that are doing something similar in the in the sort of in the Bitcoin space and using the Bitcoin rails instead of sort of um, mobile um, minutes and sort of how that's translated for M-Pesa. But you know, there are countries where it's starting to be used. It's just it's just so early in in in, in its development cycle. So Nick Hodges, Head of Innovation at News Corp, can see the potential for his business. The potential is so big, it may even save publishing as we know it. Micropayments. I think, at the risk of sounding like a Bitcoin wacko, the, you know, the, the, the protocol that says behind Bitcoin, which is, which is the blockchain, is, 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 is the most interesting thing I've come across in technology since I came across the internet. <laughs> Uh, and that was a while ago now. So um, the blockchain protocol is, is, is absolutely fascinating. It is, it's been around for long enough now that, that it's, we can pretty much sort of say that it's essentially bulletproof. Um, it, the promises it makes in terms of authenticity and, and trustworthiness are, are absolutely valid. And what it enables is, is, is absolutely phenomenal. Um, what it enables from an advertising point of view, from a publishing point of view, from a payments point of view, uh, from a data point of view, from a privacy point of view, is is, is absolutely amazing. But where it's going to take a bit of time. And so when you sort of say things that are in the future for publishers, micropayments probably not going to be a big thing for five years or so. Um, but are we working on, you know, things in the background absolutely because essentially we we will get to a point where if large content companies still exist they have to generate revenue somehow and uh, advertising is increasingly not that revenue and some sort of micropayment solution has to has to come up and one now has which is various models that are built on the blockchain and things will be experimented with and 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 then we'll hit a point where uh, essentially the the technology gets built in. So publishers are excited about it. How about banks? What does this mean for the big, gluttonous institutions we call banks? So all banks do is this. Um, Banks keep track of who owes who what and decide who deserves to get some. That's it. That's it. And I've said that in front of all four of Australia's major banks this year, in front of CEOs and everything, and none of them disagreed with me. And they'll invent a lot of terms and different ideologies and they'll package stuff up, but all it is is this. You put money somewhere, we promise to keep most of it, right? We'll lend it out to people, but if you call on it because we've got enough, we'll be able to pay you back your stuff, unless a bank fails. And we've seen that, banks still fail. And we saw it at the GFC, but that's all banks do. It's a trick. Banking is just like the biggest trick that ever happened. We definitely don't need banks, especially with NASA in your pocket, right? And, you know, I think that the blockchain will eventually become like a banking methodology, not so much Bitcoin, but the blockchain itself. But, you know, banks essentially just get, it's just a scorecard of where the money is and who owes who what and who's risky. 
And, and the risky thing, if you think about it, in the past, it was like you'd sit down with your bank manager, you'd say, you know, what's your, what's your education, what's your job, how long you've been employed, where do you live, you've got kids, okay, um, what's your savings record good, what are, what are your in, ingoings and outgoings per month, right? This is to determine whether or not you get a loan on a little piece of paper. Like, as if we can't decide that ourselves, what, we need the bank to help us decide that? No. <laughs> so banks, honestly, deep down, honest, there's some security that goes with what they do. I like the fact that if someone steals my credit card, the bank's liable. Which, by the way, you know why the banks are so hot on security and you see ads on TV about their security? It's because if someone does the wrong thing with your credit card, the bank is liable, not you. So there's a little tidbit for for the readers. A lot of people don't know that. That's why they're hot on security, because it's actually their cost, not yours. um, So long as you don't break one of the terms and conditions. If someone skims your card, their problem. If someone steals your card, their problem. As long as you don't do anything wrong with it. And so banks, yeah, they provide a bit of security, but I think that that security with digital information startups can be provided elsewhere. They create zero value. Let's be honest. What value do the banks create? I can't remember the last time a bank ever created value for me, ever. All All they've got at the moment is a little bit of a stranglehold on the system. And it might take 10 or 20 years, but I've got zero doubt that banks will be disrupted even bigger than, than the music industry was. So I really don't know um, that there'll be a big winner. And the title of my book, The Great Fragmentation, is I think there's going to be a lot of small players that solve a lot of um, different problems because we're going from one size fits all to one size fits one. So um, in answer to your question, I think it will be a uh, a suite of tools, but I I think that the probability that that we all use the same tools from the same place won't be true. Because if you look at music now, or if even you look at messaging services, right? There's like more than 10 great messaging services and all my friends use different ones a little bit. See, Apple's an infrastructure. It's almost a natural monopoly because we've all got the same phones or Android phones. But messaging, you know, some people are using, um, you know, just different messages. Some people are using WhatsApp. Some people are using iMessage. Some people are using Twitter as a messaging service in the DM. These are the whole lot of, you know, different ways of managing projects or music. Yeah. You know, oh, now I'm still on my iTunes. Oh, now I still how I still listen to the radio. No, no, I'm actually um, listening to YouTube as my record player now. Or I'm uh, no, I'm I'm on Pandora. I love Pandora. Or I'm no, I'm Spotify. Or no, I'm Apple Radio. So that's fragmenting as well. So the things that sit on top of infrastructure, I reckon, will be more fragmented. But Bitcoin, Bitcoin, and blockchain and all that kind of stuff will probably be a new set of infrastructure. So each interview, I ask, who would you most like to sit next to on an international flight? I asked Alan and uncovered something really interesting that adds to the mystique of the Bitcoin story. Who would you most like to be stuck next to on an international flight? Um, oh man, that's a really hard one. There's so many people I love to just like harass for eight hours. <laughs> um, but I mean, so just come back to, to, to sort of the Bitcoin world. I'd, I mean, I'd really like if, if, if it was at all possible to sit down to the, the fictitious character who created, right? I'd love to sit next down next to Satoshi Nakamoto and just whoever he or maybe that's a whole bunch of people that would be sitting in my row on the plane and just sort of interrogate them about how they brought it together. Because, I mean, one of the really brilliant things that people forget about Bitcoin was that, or is that it's, it's taking a whole bunch of ideas that have been out there for a long time and pulled them together in a really clever way. Right, so when you get down and deep into into Bitcoin, um, it, it, there's so many interesting design decisions that were made that um, 
at the time probably weren't obvious, but have now pulled together to make, you know, a currency. If we, again, if we're just talking about the currency, you know, that's, that's, that's I think it's still probably in the top 100 in terms of, um, you know, market cap for a currency, one of the top 100 currencies in the world, right? And that, that's, you know, partly a design decision around a whole bunch of trade-offs that were made when it was initially pulled together by the, by the fictitious character, the Satoshi Nakamoto. So it, it's, it's just a really interesting um, set of decisions that were made that I would just like to explore and why those decisions were made and sort of how that sort of came together. Um, so yeah, whether it's that one person or it's a row of people in a plane who came up with, with, with Bitcoin, that's, that's sort of, I think, who I'd like to be stuck next so to. So Nakamoto is not real because he's credited with Bitcoin. So, so it's a pseudonym, right? So it, it, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's not, it, we don't know who it is, is sort of the answer, right? So Really? Yeah, so there's not a, per, like, so there's a whole bunch of theories as to who it might be, whether it's an individual or it's a group, a, a collective um, group of people. If anyone's really interested in sort of um, in Bitcoin and is more interested in the story and the people, I'd recommend a book called um, Digital Gold by, um, uh, let me get this wrong, but I think it's Nathaniel Popper, who's a um, Wall Street Journal uh, writer. I think he's still at the Wall Street Journal, maybe, but um, it's called Digital Gold. It's a fantastic book, less about sort of Bitcoin, you know technical Bitcoin, like what is Bitcoin and blockchain technology, but more who are the people that sort of paved the way for, for Bitcoin and sort of were the guys who initially started the companies um, that, 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 that brought Bitcoin to you know, the masses, as it were, right? So it, those stories in there are fantastically interesting about some of the theories as to who, who Satoshi is. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a common view that it's either, it, it, it's probably a bunch of people that came together with this idea and just sort of worked under a pseudonym and there was probably one person who sort of guided it, right? So um, yeah, so unknown who it is. Wow. From the makers of it to what it's built on, I can't decide whether it's mysterious or just bloody complicated. I reckon both. The big promise of Bitcoin still feels a long way away from reality. I'm a huge advocate for introducing a global currency and hope the adoption of Bitcoin in the West picks up before it fizzles out. There is no shortage of news and opinion on it, so I encourage you to fall into the rabbit hole that is Bitcoin. You can go deep pretty quickly if you subscribe to Alan's Week in Bitcoin or search Bitcoin or blockchain on medium.com. Or better yet, get your wallet at coinjar.com and start playing around. You'll currently get one Bitcoin for around 550 Aussie dollars. Conversations around decentralized banking and a global currency truly expand your thinking and you start seeing the opportunities that become possible. So let's end with Alan and what Bitcoin needs to really thrive in today's world. I really like the internet analogy because there's so much, I think there's, there's quite a lot of parallels between what's happening with Bitcoin and what happened with early internet, right? So um, where we're at probably with Bitcoin realistically is we're either coming to a point where we have the browser or we're very close to having the browser, right? So at the moment, if anyone's ever tried to buy Bitcoin, it's clunky, it's not um, intuitive. There's still a lot of mis- misunderstandings around sort of what it is, for example, you're buying, okay? So there's just a whole bunch of um, stuff that it's just not clear yet, right? And then you layer on top of that, so at a conceptual level, and then you layer on top of that, a lot of, a lot of companies in this space are still very much... Um, analogous to a 1990 
1999 website, right? It's just, it's static. It's, it, it, you know, there's an analogy with that, right? It's still very clunky to buy. It's still hard to um, actually get it. There's still a whole bunch of friction around it. So that's Future Sandwich, episode two. Today's credits are going to be read by the Future Sandwich intern, Kayla. Thanks, Alan Sen, for helping out. I really recommend subscribing to Week in Bitcoin. Jump onto weekendbitcoin.com and sign up. Or getting down to Bitcoin Melbourne Meetup or Melbourne Fintech Startups Meetup. All the links in the notes at futuresandwich.com. Thanks to Nick Hodges for his chat. You can find Nick at, at Nick Hodges with a C or subscribe to his brilliant newsletter, thebrief at blonde3.com. That's the number three. Thanks to Steve Samartino. You can buy The Great Fragmentation on Amazon. Find Steve on Twitter at Samartino and follow his blog, startup.wordpress.com, and see all the crazy stuff he's done on there. And most importantly, Matt Thompson for editing this like a boss and me, Kayla. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to Future Sandwich on iTunes or follow on SoundCloud or get new episodes in your inbox by signing up at futuresandwich.com. Also, give Tommy a shout out on Twitter at T McCubbin. He's always up for hearing what you think or any suggestions of people he should talk to who are making the future happen today. Next episode, we fly to L.A and talk with Motherland's Sasha Markova about advertising and see how agencies are coping with a whole new set of ever-changing rules. This has been episode two of Future Sandwich, the podcast that has a sandwich with people making the future happen today.